And let's open our Bibles now to Esther chapter 6 as we continue our way through this book. Esther chapter 6. Picking up where we left off last week. We are right in the thick of it now in this book. Let's stand as you are able one more time in honor of the word of God. We are covering the whole chapter this week. Esther chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. On that night the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds of the chronicles. They were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Tirish, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. The king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on this Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. The king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered into the outer court of the king's palace to speak with the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, who would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn and the horse that the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown is set. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. Let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. The king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse As you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning, with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, And the wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word, for this good, pure, perfect gift that you have given to us that... By your spirits working through your word, you call us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, from death into life. You give sight to blind eyes and hearing to deaf ears. That by your spirit, through your word, you lift our eyes to behold Christ, our Savior. Pray, God, this morning that you would accomplish all of your good purposes in us and through us in the preaching of your word. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we have come this morning to what is one of the funniest scenes in the whole Bible. This is just a great 
moment. And surprisingly, the laughter in this scene is actually at the expense of a person, at the expense of an individual. And it's not just the reader laughing. It's not just us laughing as we have gone through this story and we see the tables turned on wicked Haman. If you listen close, you can hear God's laughter. A mocking laughter. Laughing in derision on those who in their arrogance consider themselves a worthy adversary for him. And maybe you're thinking God wouldn't do that. God wouldn't laugh at someone like that. Let me just refer you to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs and holds them in derision. That's exactly what we see going on in our passage today. This, this, this scene is almost too perfectly scripted to be believable. But it's true. God is... A great storyteller. And the story of Esther is so good. It is, it is full throughout the whole story with comedic irony. And this scene is the pinnacle of that comedic irony. It is masterfully told here in chapter 6. We're not going to rehearse everything that's happened in the book of Esther up to this point. But you recall in chapters 1 through 5, the story has gotten darker and darker. Deadly sins have begotten more deadly sins. Last week we saw the climax of it all with, with Haman's arrogance and pride. As, as Haman, who has risen to the place of, of second in command over the whole Persian Empire, has now been invited to attend a feast with Queen Esther and the king, just him and them. He's invited back the next evening for a second feast with just him and then them. By, by the end of the night, he had a little hiccup as he walked out of the palace, just riding, riding high, and he saw Mordecai, and Mordecai didn't bow to him, and he remembered how much he hated him. But, but the night ended with him building a 75-foot gallows on which to impale Mordecai, 25 foot higher than any other structure in all of Susa. The palace is 25 foot shorter than this gallows that he has built. And he's built it for one purpose, this irritating man, Mordecai. I'm going to kill him on it in the morning. What a, what a way to go to bed. What a night. And that's really just the first movement in this symphony that, that, that Haman has designed. It's going to culminate, not just in the death of Mordecai, but in the death of every Jew in the whole world, all across the Persian Empire, which really is every Jew by formal law. Haman has manipulated the king into sending an edict out across his whole empire. A date has been set. It is irrevocable. And Haman goes to bed this night on top of the world. In fact, he probably didn't even go to bed. He's too excited. He's come from this feast. He's been up overseeing the building of this massive structure on which to kill Mordecai in the morning. He's going to get to the king as early as he can the next day. Got to be there before the king wakes up. He's so excited about this moment. Haman's on top of his game. He has dazzled the king and the queen. In some ways, he's exercising more power than King Ahasuerus himself. He, Haman's the one asserting his will. Haman's the one getting what he wants. 
The king is just this easily manipulated pawn. And Haman's feeling it. But the Jews have been fasting for three days. The problem is, and we've, we've said this numerous times, in the book of Esther, there's no mention made of God. There's no mention made of, of prayer. Surely, though, they have been praying, but it's an intentional decision on the author of this book to not mention these things, to let us know something of what's going on with these people. So even as they fast, even as they surely call on the name of the Lord, hoping to be spared from this genocide that is ordained for them, the date being set, got to be wondering, is God even listening to them? Is God even hearing their prayers? Is Esther's plan going to work? She has got this this second dinner. She has told the king, I'm going to tell you what my request is at that second dinner. And the request is going to be spare my people. Don't let this genocide occur. But even even if it works, even if the king hears this request at the second dinner and is embarrassed because... His name's on the edict that went out to kill all the Jews. He didn't even know his wife was a Jew. Even if in all of that he says, okay, I'll do it. It's going to be far too late for Mordecai. This dinner's happening in the evening and Mordecai is going to be killed first thing in the morning. And Esther doesn't even know about that yet. So there's no hope for sparing him. Where is God in the midst of all of this? In the midst of all of this wickedness. In the midst of all of this plotting and scheming of evil men. Well, he's on his throne, laughing, holding these arrogant rulers of men in derision. And and as this story unfolds, we see the humbling and encouraging, wonderfully overwhelming sovereignty of God at work, ruling over all of this from his throne, orchestrating every detail, not only in this story, but we're reminded in all of history Crafting certain vessels for honorable use and others for dishonorable. Tempting no man to sin and yet using the sins of men to accomplish his good purposes, sometimes with great comedic flair, as we see in this particular chapter of the book of Esther. Look with me now at verse 1 again. On the night the king could not sleep, he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. So the king is sleepless. We don't know why he's sleepless. It doesn't tell us why he's sleepless, but he can't sleep. On any ordinary night at this time, he would be fast asleep, but not tonight. Tonight he can't sleep. Now remember how the previous chapter ended. A feast put on by Esther where they had much food and much wine. He should have fallen asleep the moment his head hit the pillow. But now it's the middle of the night and he's laying awake. And he wants to do something about that. And we know how that feels when you can't sleep and you start looking at the clock. I do the like, if I fall asleep at this moment, I'll get five hours. That's a, that's a death sentence for falling asleep. It's not going to happen once I start the countdown. And he wants to fall asleep. Now he's got anything he wants at his disposal. He could have someone come in and softly play live music for him. He could have someone come in and sing. He could have someone come on and put on a very boring, dramatic presentation for him. He's got about a thousand women at his disposal. 
But what he asked for, out of anything in the world he could have asked for, is to have a servant read to him. And here again, he probably has the most extensive library in the world at this time. Could have been any any work of literature that he had read to him, but he wants the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles of his life and history. Well, he's very arrogant. And God uses that arrogance. The goal, though, is I want to fall asleep and I want to fall asleep fast. Verse 2 says, It was found how Mordecai had had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, had sought to lay hands on Ahasuerus. The king said, What honor and distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Well, What a coincidence. He could have done anything he wanted to do. He chose to have someone read to him. He could have had any book he wanted to read. He chose this book. And they could have been reading any section of this book. But it just so happens they get to reading about Mordecai. How Mordecai had saved the king's life. This happened about five years previous. So there's a lot of content in this book. Mordecai had uncovered the plot, you remember, of these two eunuchs who wanted to assassinate the king. Of course, only a fool would think that this is actually a coincidence. We know it has been orchestrated by God, who has orchestrated every minute detail in this story. B.B. Warfield says this, "In, In the infinite wisdom of the Lord of all the earth, Each event falls with the exact precision into its proper place in the unfolding of his divine plan. Nothing, however small, however strange, occurs without his ordering or without its particular fitness for its place in the working out of his purpose. We we see this going on here in this story. No detail, no matter how small, no matter how minute, is outside of the plan of God who is working all things together. Ahasuerus, as he lays there wanting to sleep in the middle of the night, is still awake enough as he is being read to, to catch that something's missing from the story of Mordecai saving his life. And so he asks, well, what did we ever do for this guy? What honor or distinction was given to Mordecai for saving my life? The the Persians were meticulous about this about honoring those who were loyal, all the more so if you saved the king's life. They wanted to do something big for you. You were called one of the king's benefactors if you had done something good for the king. But if you uncovered a plot to assassinate the king, we're going big because we want everybody to know like we should all be on team, save the king's life at all costs. And so he says, what did we ever do for Mordecai? And it just so happens, again, coincidentally, nothing. A major oversight had taken place. This is very bad form in the Persian Empire. History tells us that this king, Ahasuerus, and again, Ahasuerus is a, is a throne name like, like Pharaoh. History knows him by his Greek name, Xerxes. And history tells us Xerxes was very intentional about these things. He did not overlook these things. He did not miss these things. This is highly unusual. In fact, it is supernaturally unusual. And so at hearing this, this man saved my life and we did nothing for him. Now the king's awake. He's awake, awake. And he's filled with urgency. We got to do something about this. And at that very moment, again, as, as, as each thing happens with, with pr- divine precision, he hears someone in the outer court. 
And this king, being who this king is, as he's presented in the book of Esther, he can never make a decision for himself. He can never do anything. He just does whatever he's told. He's like a helpless child in this story. And he hears somebody out in the court, and he goes, well, whoever that is, I'm going to need their advice, I think. So we see that at this precise moment, verse 4, and the king said, who's in the court? And Haman had just entered the court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. The king said, let him come in. So here's Haman, second in command, Haman, prime minister, Haman, faithful Haman. He has arrived in the early hours of the morning, probably before the sun is up. And Ahasuerus is thinking, what perfect timing. Good old Haman. Coming through for me again. Just when I need advice, good old Haman is here. Send him in. Haman, of course, is there for one reason. And that reason is, look, I built an awesome gallows. I would love to to kill Mordecai. I've got this beautiful structure. I'd like to go to Mordecai's house, wake him up, drag him out of his bed, drag him back to my house, and then impale him in front of the whole city. Is that okay? And, and Haman is there. He is excited to do this. He is eager to kill Mordecai. And he has come to the king before the day has even started. He, he's, maybe, he's maybe been there for a while. He, he's maybe been up all night long. And when the king wakes up, he's going to get the king's permission to publicly murder his enemy. And then after that, he'll clean up and go have a nice feast with the king and the queen. It's going to be an amazing day for Haman. A great day. Again, what timing? What timing in all of this? It it just so happens that as Haman has come excited on bated breath to do this, the king has been up all night long, couldn't sleep, decides to have someone read to him, chooses this one particular Volume of the chronicles of his empire happens to hear about Mordecai, happens in his sleepiness to catch the fact that they didn't do anything for Mordecai. And now at this precise moment where all the king can think about is we've got to honor Mordecai the Jew. Haman walks in with the intention of asking the king to let him kill Mordecai. The the tension and the timing couldn't be more perfect. The king is, is glad Haman's there because he wants Haman's advice. He wants to immediately and publicly honor Mordecai. And Haman is, is glad to be there because he is just bursting at the seams to get the king's blessing to immediately and publicly kill Mordecai. It's it's a amazing scene. The tension is so thick. Verse 6 says, So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What? What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? So no question, Haman, why are you here? What did you come for? Do you have a request? Haman doesn't get to get the request out that he's been dying to give to the king. The king speaks immediately, and the king asks a question, and what a question. Could God have set this up any more perfectly? What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? The the king of Hezuera speaks so vaguely enough Then he doesn't say who he's talking about, and Haman doesn't know who he's talking about. The scene is so amazing. Hey, it goes on, and Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? 
Literally, it is Haman said in his heart, who would the king delight to honor more than me? Anytime that statement is made about a human being in the Bible, it's not good. And it's not good here. But Haman's thinking, this has got to be me. It's got to be me the king is talking about. I'm the one the queen invited to her feast last night. I'm the one who put on such a good show at that feast that I'm invited to a feast again tonight. He's convinced the king must be passively, kind of coyly, asking Haman, how would you like me to honor you in front of everyone? You are so amazing. And in the great comedy of God, Haman gives an audacious, outlandish, shameless answer to the king's question. It says in verse 7, Haman said to the king, for the man who the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. And the horse that the king has ridden and on whose head the royal crown is set. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Here's Haman's advice to the king. What should you do to honor him? Make him king. Make him king in the eyes of the people. It is a wildly inappropriate thing that Haman is asking the king to do. In fact, Herodotus, the Greek historian from whom we get much of Persian history, he says that in Xerxes' kingdom, nobody wears the clothes of the king except the king. Someone once asked Xerxes for something similar to this, to let them wear one of his garments, and he was refused. Clothes were, were considered a part of the person's body. They were considered a part of the person's being. And so <laughs> Haman's being over the top right now. It's a, it's a power play that Haman is going for. Give him, give him your clothes. Give him your horse with the, with the royal turban on the horse's head. May, take one of your most important officials... And make him act like a slave to this guy. Make him dress him. Can you imagine that? Haman is picturing himself like, take the next most important guy next to me. Obviously, I'm the most important guy. Take the next guy, make him dress me. Make him lead me through the streets, touting my praises. Thus shall it be done to the man who the king delights to honor. Haman is out of his mind with pride and glory lust. He's probably got drool running out of his mouth as he, is, as he is telling the king what the king ought to do. He's imagining this amazing spectacle of being led through the city with everyone seeing him, everyone hearing, everyone knowing that Haman is the real power in Susa. And then this little parade is going to end back at his house where he's going to publicly murder Mordecai on a giant gallows to the cheers and trembling of all the people. He's going to be a god among men. And the true God, the God of heaven, laughs. Verse 10 says, the king said to Haman, hurry. Take the, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. This is absolutely hilarious. Haman hates Mordecai so much. If you remember back to last week, 
Haman is riding high after this dinner with the queen and the king and an invite to another dinner the next day with the king and the queen. And he hates Mordecai so much that when he walks out of the palace and sees Mordecai, he flies into an unbridled rage. And he gets home and he tells his wife and his friends, my riches mean nothing to me. My position of authority in the kingdom means nothing to me. Even my ten sons mean nothing to me, so long as Mordecai the Jew lives. Can you imagine that kind of hatred? I'd rather have my ten sons dead than for this one man to live. That's how much I hate him. And then at the very pinnacle of his pride, just when things couldn't get any better from him, the rug is ripped out from underneath Haman's feet. Haman has said, treat this man like the king. Dress him in your clothes. Give him your horse. Have one of your most important officials look like a servant compared to him. And Azuera says, that is a great idea. And he says, hurry. And when that first word comes out of his mouth, hurry, Haman's heart must be beating out of his chest. It's it's all coming together. It's about to happen. And then the gut punch comes, go do it for Mordecai the Jew. Haman, you're the official that's going to humble yourself. You're the one who's going to look like his servant. You go dress him. You go lead him around the city. You declare that the king is honoring him. It's a great plan. Haman, don't leave anything out. All the things you've said, do all of it. Make sure all of it is done. This is comedy gold. This is incredible storytelling. The the, the book of Esther is some of the most incredible storytelling known to man. And, And let me just note on that topic, since it is that time of year and I need some... I don't know, some therapy right now this morning with all of you. It's summer blockbuster time. And summer blockbuster time can only mean one thing. Churches are all doing their at-the-movies sermon series. It's this thing that all attractional churches are convinced they have to do, where they do a sermon series based on the popular movies that are out, and they do this big spectacle in their churches, and they're all very proud of themselves for their creativity. So it's on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and everywhere else. It's sort of like adult VBS for immature Christians. The big ones I've seen this year are Barbie, uh, Star Wars, Mario. And I'll just say this respectfully. Why in the world would you want to do something so stupid when you could just preach the Bible? Isn't this story good enough? Do we really think Barbie is better than this? It's not. I haven't seen it, but I just know internally. Isn't the word of God sufficient? Isn't it glorious enough for us? We got to do these things. We got to run to the world. And we got to take their things because that's the only thing that can draw people in is when we do a big spectacle like that. It is a stomach-turning, pathetic excuse for preaching. And people go after it in droves. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, the time's coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And all we have to do is look online at social media and we'll see it's happening. It's, it's, it's happening all around us. All right, I'll settle down. I'm stepping off my, my high horse now. 
Verse 11, Haman took, off the, Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. This is so brutal. Can, can you even imagine this? It's one of the greatest reversals of all time. Haman was on top of the world, all of his dreams coming true, and now suddenly the bottom falls out. And instead of killing Mordecai, he has to publicly honor Mordecai. He has to present himself as Mordecai's servant to the whole city. This is devastating. And Haman is never going to have another second of peace in his life. He will not have a moment to breathe for the rest of his life. We'll see that as the action happens with him immediately and immediately and immediately. Haman had been the messenger of death to Mordecai and to the the people of God. And now he is forced to be the messenger of hope. The messenger of good news to Mordecai and to God's people. Imagine what, what this did for the Jews to see Mordecai paraded through the city. Honored by the king, the, the infusion of hope that, that immediately came to them. And just take a moment to marvel at the absolute sovereignty of God. How he has orchestrated everything, how nothing has been left to chance, how he is in control of every little detail. J.C. Ryle says this there's no such thing as chance or luck. Or accident in the Christian's journey through this world. All is arranged and appointed by God. Therefore let us seek to have an abiding sense of God's hand in all that befalls us. If we profess to be believers in Jesus Christ. Let us strive to realize that a father's hand is measuring our daily portion. And that our steps are ordered by him. That's right. That's how we ought to live our lives. That is the understanding we ought to be living our lives with. Where was God when this decree of death went out across the Persian Empire? Where was God at when Mordecai saved the king's life and they never did anything for him and it seemed like they just forgot about it? Where was God when Haman rose to power, when he was promoted? And Mordecai wasn't. Where was God when Haman was plotting the murder of Mordecai and all the Jews? Where was God while these nations raged and plotted in vain? Where was God when the Persian Empire itself grew and grew and grew to such prominence that we still make movies about them today? Where was God when Haman built that 75-foot gallows? When he walked to the palace filled with excitement and glee over what he was going to do to Mordecai First thing that morning. Where was God? He was in the same place he always was. Always is. Always will be. In the heavens. Seated on his throne. Ruling over everything. Doing whatever pleases him in heaven and on earth. Accomplishing every single one of his sovereign purposes. And providing for and caring for and upholding his people. And yes, laughing at the arrogance of men who think they are strong enough to challenge his reign. And at this very moment, friends, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who atoned for our sins, who is putting his enemies under his feet, is seated at the right hand of God. And every nation and every people and every tribe and tongue will either be mercifully converted by him 
or made to be Christ's footstool. There's no neutrality. There's no in-between. Either mercifully saved by him, submitting to him or his footstool. Psalm 2, which we read from earlier, says in verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's no middle ground. Verse 12 then, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that happened to him. And his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Remember when chapter 5 ended? Mordecai is still in mourning. He's the one in mourning. Haman's at the height of his glory. Haman's even been feast, uh, invited to a private feast by Mordecai's adoptive daughter, Esther, while Mordecai's at home fasting, while Mordecai's at home mourning, while Mordecai's at home wearing sackcloth with his head covered. But now Mordecai's wearing the king's robes on the king's horse, being promoted, promoted, promoted in the city as the one the king wants to honor. And it's Haman who's in mourning with his head covered. It's Haman who's, who's hurrying home, defeated. And he goes straight to his wife and his friends to vent. And this time they actually tell him the truth. If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. If this is Mordecai, if this is your enemy, if he is of the people that you have sentenced to death, if this is what's happening, and surely they've heard the stories. They've heard the stories of Israel and her God. If this Mordecai is of those Jewish people, you'll surely fall before him. And while they're still saying those words to him, the king's eunuchs arrive and hurry to bring Haman to the feast that Esther has prepared. Again, Haman's not going to know one second of peace for the rest of his very short earthly existence. And again, the timing is perfection. The intensity just keeps ramping up because there's something more going on here than mere coincidence. Something else is at work. In fact, someone else is at work. And that someone holds all power, all authority, all sovereign rule. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That was true in Esther's time. That was true in the first century when Paul wrote those words in Colossians. And it is just as true today. Church, we need not fear when it appears that Christians are becoming more and more and more the minority in our 
nation and in our world. Have no fear when you see that many of our churches are preaching a weak, nominal Christianity with no backbone and no power. Have no fear when we live among a people who no longer know their right hand from their left or male from female. Because the world really hasn't gotten worse. This is what it's always been like. In fact, what's happened is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has expanded miraculously. And there is much work to be done. If you have got eyes to see, you know that that's true. This is no time for complacency. But if even the wife of wicked Haman, the Agagite, Haman, the enemy of God's people, Haman, the enemy of God, if even she knows that the God of the Bible is unstoppable, how much more should we know it, Christians? Who will overcome the people of the Lord Jesus Christ? The answer is no one. A resounding no one. Not even the gates of hell will prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. How vast will be the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ? How widespread his conquering of his foes? Well, all we have to do is keep reading in Colossians 1 to see the answer. It says in verse 18, as Paul continues, he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God it was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's the answer. All things. The God of the Jewish people didn't just conquer Egypt, didn't just conquer Canaan, didn't just conquer Babylon and Persia and then Rome. Not only will he entirely conquer, either through repentance and faith or through wrathful destruction, every other great empire that the world has known or ever will know. And that's America, that's China, that's Russia, you name it. Every last square inch of this planet. Not only that, but he has conquered every supernatural authority and dominion and ruler and even death itself. And he is, as Paul says here in Colossians 1, reconciling to himself all things through the blood of the cross. Now the Apostle Paul, when he writes these words, is in chains. When he makes this triumphant statement of the utter victory of Christ and ultimately his church. He is powerless, humanly speaking. He is in prison simply for preaching the gospel. So why is he so optimistic? Why is he so sure? Why is he, where does this joy come from and this hope come from and this confidence come from? Didn't Paul realize that worldly powers are tyrannical? Didn't he realize that the church at that time was very, very tiny? That Christians were the extreme minority, that their resources were were so much less than the resources of the wicked world around them. Maybe Paul just didn't know that Christians were being persecuted and martyred. Well, of course, Paul did know those things. Paul's in prison as he writes this. Paul is going to 
lay down his life for the gospel. He's been told already as he writes these words by the prophet Agabus that he's going to be martyred, that his life is going to be taken from him for the sake of the gospel. Paul knows this. Isn't Paul concerned about the world that Christian children will inherit? Didn't he know the whole direction of the world seems to be running hard and fast in absolutely the wrong direction? And the answer is yes. Paul knew exactly what was going on. So why is he so confident? Why is he so optimistic? Why is he so joyous? Well, it's for this reason. It's because our brother, the Apostle Paul, knew that the one true God was sovereign over everything. He knew that God was wisely and powerfully ruling over all of it. And he knew that this God who is ruling over all of it is faithful to his promises, which are unbelievably good. He knew that God is good and that God's plans are good. He knew that God will by no means destroy the righteous nor let the wicked go unpunished. It was because Paul knew the word of God, which makes unshakable promises to God's people. It was because Paul knew the gospel. And so although the world around him hated God and hated God's people, he knew that the gospel was the power of God for salvation to all who would believe. And he knew that the gospel saves wicked people like him. Paul knew that the sovereign God was writing this whole story. That although we can only see in part, that we're only given the slightest foretaste of heaven in this life. He knew, and friends, we know that this story ends with God proving victorious over every single one of his foes. Even sin, even death. We know that this story ends with the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, forever married to his bride, the great church victorious. We know that the righteous will inherit the earth. And so, fear not, Christian, as you look at the world around you, the the wicked will surely fall by his own wickedness, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. God is still on his throne, God is ruling. God is unthreatened by the schemes of men. He laughs at their arrogant raging, but the righteous, his people, he will lift up. He will uphold them with his hand. Like Mordecai, Mordecai wrapped in the the very clothes of the king. We friends have been clothed In Christ's own righteous robes. We've been seated with him in heavenly places. We are are so closely identified with him. We're so hidden in him. So united to him that our standing in heaven is, is as secure as Christ's is. So such that all of heaven rejoices over one repentant sinner. We can't even comprehend the welcome we will receive when we walk through those gates. And it's all ours. It's all ours, not according to our own merit or righteousness, 
As we have seen in the story of Esther, God accomplishes his purposes through very flawed people. It's not according to our merit. It's not according to our righteousness. It is ours by grace alone, through faith alone, according to the spotless righteousness of Christ alone that is ours by faith. The one who lived for us, the one who died for us, the one who has risen in glory. This is where our hope is found. And so as we look at a world that feels to us at times like it's spiraling out of control. As we look around and we, we wander to ourselves vainly, where is God in the midst of all of this? We stand on what we know to be true. And that is that God is on his throne Ruling and reigning. These earthly powers that seem so dominant to us. He is unbothered by them. Unaffected by them. He mocks at their arrogance. He laughs at them. He holds them in derision. They will fall by their own wickedness. But ours is the gospel. Ours is the gospel to proclaim, to proclaim that, that men need not, they need not fall by their own wickedness. They, they need not come under the condemnation that, that, that belongs to them because of their rebellion and wickedness. The condemnation that is on them right now, that they need not die in that state, as we're going to see Haman die in that state, but instead... They can come to this God, this king who bids them to come into his very presence. They can bow their knee before the Lord Jesus Christ. They can call on his name and he will grant to them not only repentance, but faith, salvation, eternal life, all the the inheritance that we have as the children of God. And so may we be bold to proclaim this gospel in its full effect both the, the condemnation that this world lives underneath, but also the hope that comes for all who will call on the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Lord, we look at, we look at Haman as we have this past couple weeks, and we recognize apart from your grace, we are not better than he is. Lord, we ourselves are full of pride. We ourselves are full of rebellion and wickedness. We have been at war against you in our flesh, and it is only by the mercy of our God and the cross of Christ that we have been reconciled to you. And so, Lord, we are humbled. We thank you. We worship you. We glory in you and your great salvation. We pray, God, that you would make us faithful ambassadors of this king, of this kingdom, of this gospel. Lord, that you would make us faithful and fruitful to that end. For your name's sake, for your kingdom's sake, for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.